1: Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe
0: slash student. It's Wednesday, October the 12th. You're very welcome to the weekly Inside Politics podcast from The Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on, we're going to be discussing uh, what the threat of an imminent global recession might mean for Irish politics. And we're also going to be looking at the ongoing debate about the parallel energy crisis, which we all face this winter. We're also going to be hearing about whether face masks might become required again in the months ahead. With me today are Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan Jones from our political staff. Hello to you
1: both. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Hugh. Hello.
0: That was a pretty grim agenda uh, I offered there. So before we before we launch into all of that, maybe we'll uh, turn to a subject which is, if not quite a piece of light entertainment, is sort of fascinating and interesting and slightly entertaining, I think. Um, the Taoiseach took it upon himself uh, in the doll yesterday, Jen, to comment on the decision by Orchie not to broadcast an interview last week. That interview was with the former TD and former minister, Shane Ross, about his biography of Sinn Féin leader Mary M- Lou Macdonald. Can you just fill us in on the background to that?
1: Sure. So all of this basically centres around Shane Ross uh, the former minister of the Independent Alliance, now defunct Independent Alliance, uh, his biography of Mary Lou Macdonald, which was launched last week. So what has effectively happened is over the weekend in the Sunday Independent, Shane Ross was writing about an interview that he gave to the Clare show on RTE. Now, basically, look, the long and the short of what he was saying was that there were some topics. Now, this is what he was writing in his column. There were some topics that were taken off the table um, during that discussion, during that interview. And he felt what was left was kind of this sort of highly sanitized version uh, of, of of an interview about the book. Now, he says afterwards that it was dropped. Uh, he said it, the reasons given were quite vague about editorial guidelines. Um, and what happened then was kind of unusually, I suppose. It came up in the doll then yesterday where the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, said that apparently a political party, so Sinn Féin, had been given access to the interview to listen to it. Um, and he was talking about, you know, how it needed to be explained the fact that the interview was pulled from the Claire Byrne show. So this is kind of where the, the controversy came around. Now, Orti and Sinn Féin later yesterday evening, both put statements out and, and, and they both said they hadn't been given access to the interview about the book. Um, Mary Lou McDonald's called Mary Lou a Republican riddle. Um, the RTE sources basically who spoke to the Irish Times today said that the interview was dropped just because it was just a little bit boring. Um, and and that was the reason for that. I think maybe the interesting part of this is that you would have the Taoiseach standing up in the doll kind of talking about a decision that a broadcaster would make or any media organisation would make in terms of interviews that they would or wouldn't play because it's they're fully within their rights if they decide that something is quite boring not to run it at all. And it could actually be that it was just simply, like I said, not very interesting. The, I suppose the other aspect of it is, I suppose the reason why it has this sort of political heat to it. Uh, well, that probably is overegging it a bit. Is because Mary Lou Macdonald is, of course, suing RTE, and so the question arises: you know, the effect of her suing RTE does this play into this somewhere along the way? And you'd have to imagine that if you were being sued by somebody in the High Court, that yes, of course, you're going to think you're going to, you're, you're going to be very aware of that and perhaps very careful what you say about that person uh, so as not to inflame the situation and that opens the wider question of you know her decision to do that and and sort of the chilling effect that it might have and I'm absolutely not saying that's what happened here in fact I don't think it is but I do think it's a factor in the conversation that is that has happened uh around this um story which sort of took me by surprise when it came up in the doll yesterday if I'm being honest
0: Yeah, I have a few thoughts about this, Jack. I mean, as a sometime media analyst myself and as somebody who's worked in radio a little bit in the past, I mean, first of all, in newspapers and in other media organisations, they always reserve the right not to publish something. There is no guarantee of publication and they that's an editorial decision which they reserve to themselves and that's a point which RT have been making over the last couple of days. And I think that's absolutely correct and as and as it should be. Having done some uh, some radio myself, I know that a lot of items are pre recorded and some of them don't make the cut finally. That's just that's just part of of the process. But I do wonder a little bit about this. This is a very high profile book by a very high profile author about one of the most high profile politicians in the country. And in a situation like that, I think that even if the interview didn't come off very well and as Jen said ended up being uh, pretty boring, you might even come back and have another go at it because it is quite a significant story and with all due respect to our colleagues in RTE, you know, that they've been known to publish a few Boring items previously on their on their current affairs programs. So no more is, uh, or less
2: than ourselves, I'm sure. No
0: more or less than ourselves. And indeed, then to come back to our own experiences, which are which you know run parallel to uh, you know to broadcasting, we do take great care or greater care, I think it's fair to say, with a certain number of prominent individuals in this country who are known to be fond of of, of legal letters. So, I mean, all of that taps into this, and all of that worth considering. But the main question that arises after yesterday for me is, surely it's a very bad look for Micheál Martin to get this factually wrong when he stood up in the dole yesterday.
2: Yes, and I think that may be, well ultimately be one of the upshots of this, that he's kind of placed himself in the fire line to an extent by... Um by engaging with the topic, now he did kind of offer disclaimers at the start, and the middle, and at the end. But of course, nobody's going to hear the disclaimers in the final reckoning. No one's going to hear that he said, you know, I'm I'm basically operating on the assumption that all this is correct and that the version that's been outlined is 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 the case. Um, nonetheless, he seems he seems to have made an error in suggesting that Sinn Fein were given access to parts of of the interview, of the broadcast interview, before uh, it went live. The the factual situation. Um, and I don't think this is in dispute by any uh, of, of Sinn Féin-RT or Shane Ross, is that they were to be given, under the terms of the agreement between Shane Ross and RT, a right of reply uh, before the broadcast went out, which is, is a little unusual. Um, you know, a right of reply usually applies to, to, to post-publication. Um, and that if they asked for the context of a particular question or comment that was being put to them for a comment, they would be given the relevant extract of the book, as opposed to the relevant extract from the interview. And the Taoiseach seems to have, have misinterpreted that to an extent and hence opened a bit of a political vulnerability for himself uh, because Sinn Féin have now been offered the upper hand, I would say, uh, and they can say that, you know, the, the Taoiseach was was too uh, enthusiastic about making them out to be acting in some ways in bad faith or being given, given some kind of special treatment by RTÉ. Um, when RTE's processes, uh, you know, are, are for for themselves to, to decide. I do think that RTE, while of course they have the right to make an editorial decision, I do think they've made a rod for their own backs here in the way they approach the, you know, editorial construction of the programme. Uh, this incredibly convoluted process uh, of a pre-recorded interview that then in turn had to be heavily legaled and then in turn had to be given to Sinn Féin or Mary Lou McDonald for a right of reply in this issue of the extract. It, it, it It's it's a, it's a, a, a whole process which is laden with its own processology. Uh, I suspect that Bill O'Reilly had it right when he just said, we'll do it effing live. You know, I think they should have done this. They should have done this segment live. Um, you know, Shane Ross is an experienced journalist and broadcaster and probably knows how to go about uh, not libeling someone live on air. Claire Byrne is an, an equally experienced journalist and broadcaster, knows how to steer a conversation. Um, and, you know, they, there are risks inherent in doing that, but one could convincingly argue that they created a whole bunch of risks for themselves in um, conjuring up this process, which have now blown up in, in their own faces and, and in the round, I suppose who's walking away from this uh, looking well, Sinn Féin to a certain extent, but um, I suppose most fundamentally, Shane Ross who, and who, has, who has managed to, to create <laughs> not, not on purpose and not through his own fault but there there's, there's a lot of controversy attached to this and controversy obviously generates headlines which in turn sells books so I'm sure that Shane Ross is not too aggrieved by the, the whole process.
0: Yeah, I think there's no doubt that Shane Ross is the big winner and he got the he got the the extra publicity jag that he was looking for quite successfully but it does raise a question and I gather the, the former or 2 Broadcaster Sean O'Rourke raised this point at the launch of Shane Ross's book last week, Jen, which is, you know, a really legitimate concern that the the activities of prominent Sinn Féin figures in recent years, including Mary Lou Macdonald, are having a chilling effect on the willingness or the ability of the media to ask legitimate and difficult questions. I haven't read the book. I've read extracts from it, and I've read a number of reviews of it, and I've listened to interviews with with Shane Ross, and it tells us a lot more about Mary Lou Macdonald's, I suppose, personal life, her experience of growing up in Dublin, her family background, and it also looks at questions which people have been asking without getting satisfactory answers for years about issues such as the financing of the party and where decisions are ultimately made. That's all legitimate material and becomes more and more pressing, I think, as it becomes more and more likely that Sinn Féin are soon going to be in government. So there is a kind of a, there is a concern about this, isn't there? I mean, looking at this interview last week, I know the way that broadcasting works in Ireland. RTE definitely got first dibs on that interview. Everybody else came afterwards, and they did run their interviews on News Talk, Today FM, Irish Examiner, and various other places. RTE got that first slot, and the fact that they then just junked it to me—it's a somewhat worrying sign.
1: Um, lots there to unpack, Hugh. <laughs> um, okay. On on your last point, like I said, um, I, I guess some of the comments in the doll. I think we're perhaps a little bit over the top. Just if you're talking about Ortiz's decision to run or not run it, um, Wex, you know the Finnegay Oxford TD Paul Kyo. I think he was talking about. He said, uh, "I'm not sure if they are afraid or who they're afraid of or what they're hiding, but this is censorship of the highest order and has very serious consequences for the national broadcaster." Now, what I would say about that is some of the facts that were given out in the doll were wrong. Um, and those parties and, and, and Sinn Féin were not given access to it. And that sort of changes the entire context of this. I won't even call it a controversy of this story, um, if, if that is the case. If it was just an editorial decision, I think that is fully within their rights. I mean, if we decided in the Irish Times, which we have done many times and on the politics team, we've had to do many times for various different reasons, not to run a story it is usually always because there is an issue with the story or the story is boring or whatever. Uh, and and that is our decision to make. And I, I think that if anybody in the doll stood up and said, you know, Jack Horgan Jones didn't run this story. I, I've just become aware this is censorship of the highest order without having all the facts or having some of the facts wrong. That's an issue as well. Um, but just to go back to your original point then about Sinn Féin and you know, their capacity to answer questions or their lack of willingness to answer questions. Like, let's call a spade a spade here. It's a massive problem in Sinn Féin. If I want to go to a a TD half the time to ask them, what do you think about X? Or what do you think about Y? Or what do you think about this government policy? Half the time, no, sorry, let's, no, like 80% of the time, I get a phone call back directing me to the press office. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've contacted representatives in Sinn Féin only to be told to go to the press office. That doesn't happen in other political parties. In other political parties, the TDs uh, or the senators or whoever it may be will tell you what they think. Uh, and they have no problem doing that. doesn't happen in Sinn Féin. Also, well, it doesn't always happen in Sinn Féin. Sometimes it does. Also, what I will say is when there is a big story around Sinn Féin, whether it's about questions that Shane Ross raises in his book about the extension on, on Mary Lou McDonald's house, whether it's about the time when you know Brian Stanley made uh who's chair who's chair of the, the, the pack um made a number of comments that we reported on very well any kind of controversy that blows up along the way they disappear from the plinth all of a sudden their tuesday stand up on the plinth outside Lancaster house where they give uh doorstep interviews to print and broadcast media they often just disappear so they decide themselves we're in the we're in the news now for this that the other And obviously the decision is, let's not go out. So firstly, you have the centralised kind of power structure, which we've talked about many times, um, which would be really interesting to see how that works in government if they get into government. Um, We've got that. And then you also have the complete lack of willingness to actually continue with their normal political routines when questions are asked. And, you know, I do think that's a problem. And I do wonder if they get into government, what our jobs will be like and how they'll handle that. Because it's one thing kind of deciding you're not going to answer a journalist's question when you're in opposition. It's a whole other thing if you're going to go into government and bring down that kind of omerta. So I, I think it will be really interesting to s- I don't see it changing personally, but I suppose one of the offshoots of this has been that conversation around the, the silence that sometimes descends around Sinn Féin.
0: Right. Well, we'll leave that for the moment. And we'll we'll move on to the uh the somewhat uh, larger issue and more serious issue i think it's fair to say jack of uh apparently an impending global recession across much of the world which the the International Monetary Fund is predicting for next year. Our, uh, I noticed a headline in our breaking news this morning on irishtimes.com that, that Intel, which is a major employer in Ireland, is looking at job cuts across its global workforce over the next 12 months because of because of declining uh, revenues. And that might just be one canary in, in quite a large coal mine if our lead story today about the economic prospects for 2023 holds. Uh, we may be entering into a different world.
2: I think so, yeah. And uh, I think that you saw a lot of this uh, in the, the budgetary documentation that was released uh, in September. Um, the, the kind of tectonic plates are shifting, uh, whether that would be um, the, the policy of central banks around the world, uh, increasing interest rates and the pastor through effect that will ultimately have on borrowers and mortgage holders, uh, whether it's um, a sustained period of inflation and the associated issue of, of a perhaps lasting structural shifts uh, in fossil fuel prices and the impact that has on the, the viability of firms. Um, or whether it's it's you know a whole host of issues around you know let's just take for example China and and the the robustness of their economic recovery uh, and the energy demands that that might have um, associated with it the 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 mood music is definitely shifting internationally and you see that. Um, in the forecasts, both globally and and, and within Ireland, uh, where we're obviously exposed to things like uh, high energy prices at an unavoidable level because we're a net energy importer, uh, with the exception really of the uh, electricity generated from wind power. And the gas that we bring in from the west coast, uh, we 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 import too much for energy to to avoid um, the impact of of high gas prices and high energy prices and high oil prices and all the rest of it. And this is this is stuff that we know. So I think we should get ready for for probably what the central bank suggests will be a, a below trend uh, period of economic uh, growth extending into to 2024, and and within that there will be political fallout effects. Um, because according to the Central Bank, there is a, a cohort of households around 15 percent of households with relatively lower income who have larger expenditure on essentials of food and energy and limited savings buffers. So they don't have these kind of accumulated COVID era savings that a lot of kind of uh, middle income and higher income households might have and might be able to rely upon to, to kind of sustain consumption over the next period. Uh, and then as Owen Kennedy writes in in the paper this morning in the lead story there's about 5000 firms in the assessment of the central bank that are that are vulnerable uh, and that are kind of scarred or wounded from the pandemic have never quite recovered and uh, are now being faced with the inflationary impact as well and you know you would have to wonder how many of those 5000 plus presumably will be will be vulnerable uh, and the associated impact if any of those were to to go to the wall uh, and the employment impact because even though the employment market is very strong at the moment i don't think it's predicted to to remain quite as strong there's likely to be some softening over the next little while. So, as I said, there are obviously political upshots to this. It is unavoidable. It is the economy stupid. It's impossible to get away from the impact of the economy on the political cycle. And we saw the first uh, tranche of that in the budget, um, where because the, the government effectively got an enormous case, and, and rightly so, of the heebie jeebies over the summer, um, and and consequently, increase the size of the budget day package, increase the size of the the one-off measures, uh, to the point where we got to this enormous, uh, almost unprecedented number of eleven, 11 billion. And um, the the reaction will be to rely on the balance balance sheet of the state to to support and backstop um, households and and firms. Uh, the question is whether it's going to be sufficient. Uh, I suspect that the the sugar rush effect of that large number. Uh, released on budget day won't last all the way through winter. We've seen that they're already bringing forward some of the lump sum payments. The problem at lump sum payments is once they're gone, they're once they're once they're gone, they're gone. Um, at least for the time being. At least we would have to think this side of Christmas. And uh, you know, there's a hope, I suppose, that a lot of households conserve those lump sum payments and and use them to to sustain uh utility bills across the. Across the winter, I'm not sure that that necessarily will be the case. And um, as the tide goes out, as the budgetary tide goes out and leaves behind it, a lot of people who um, who still are exposed to to the impact of enormously high utility bills and associated high inflation across the economy, and um, that'll be something that the the coalition will have to 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 grapple with before we're much older and I suspect we'll have to go again which is something we've covered already on this podcast in January and this will just become the the cyclical nature of the response I suspect for at least at least this winter but you know longer term as well I was at a press conference last week and where Eamon Ryan slipped in at the end you know that we we should not expect this to be a one winter phenomenon we shouldn't expect these pressures to alleviate even next summer because there's going to be enormous pressure to build up gas reserves for winter 2023-24 across uh, next summer so you know this is as we said, as as I said, this is a kind of. This seems to be a, a lasting or at least semi permanent kind of shift uh, in a lot of factors, and and grappling with that is going to be one of the main tasks that the political system has for the next uh, for the next period. Certainly, for the I would imagine for the remainder of the lifetime of this government, however long that may be.
0: And Jen, this government has been able to rely upon what are I think you could describe as, as as windfall revenues from. Huge increases in corporation tax, mostly from foreign direct investment from from multinationals and the associated tax bonanza um, from that, and therefore it's been able to commit to these what Jack refers to there. These it's particularly keen on these one-off payments as opposed to committing to permanent, you know, uh, recurring payments. But if those get bigger and bigger over the next while, and if there's a slowdown in the world economy, it's reasonable to predict that the the really very buoyant revenues, which uh, which the state has has experienced over the last over the last year or two, um, you know, may go into reverse. And the other element is that interest rates are rising, and so that raises all kinds of additional questions.
1: Yeah, and I think there has been kind of a, a focus on this in the Department of Finance in terms of looking at those corporation tax receipts and trying to analyse, you know, exactly how many of these uh, receipts are exposed. You know, what is the danger here, and the anxiety is, of course, that. This is not a long-term phenomena. This is a short-term phenomena. So yeah, that's why we had the budget package, which was the core package of over, yeah, I think it was like 6.9 billion. And then you had the once-off measures, which was over 4 billion. And it was really interesting actually yesterday at a post-cabinet press conference, um, the Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGraw, was out uh, alongside the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys. And they were talking about all the different Lump sum payments that Jack mentioned there, and the different dates that they will be coming in through, starting from next week, is eight lump sum payments, all the way to the Christmas bonus in in, in Christmas, and they're outlining all this, you know, massive, massive funding, and the questions the journalists ask are asking at the at the press conference is, yeah, but what next? Okay, that's fine, but what's next? And you could see kind of the, I won't call it impatience. Well, yeah, it was. I suppose it was impatience in in Michael McGrath's face when he was saying, well. You know, we just announced a budget package worth 11 billion euro just, you know, two or three weeks ago. So let's just let that, you know, take place as it was. Um, And I think it is a a mark of kind of where politics is going. What we'll see over the next couple of weeks, like Jack said, is the question of when is the next intervention? Because the feeling is uh, that kind of that eaten bread is soon forgotten and that there will have to be a significant package early in the new year. Um, regardless of whether their corporation tax receipts are still strong. Um, but I was, I have to say, I was kind of struck this morning. I was pulling together our, we do our, our Inside Politics Morning Digest for anybody who hasn't signed up, do so. But I was kind of putting together the, you know, the the, the package and going, well, what will I write about? And I just thought, oh my God, it was, you know, a global recession, uh, the perfect economic storm, or perhaps the energy crunch, or maybe Joe Biden having a fight with Saudi Arabia or... It does seem like there are these kind of overlapping crises, which is kind of once in a, well, I hope once in a lifetime. Um, And it's almost like, which piece of bad news will I I pick today to write about? It's kind of grim. And I will say I was also kind of chilled a little bit by the last line in Owen Burke Kennedy's, one of his reports about that IMF report that Jack was talking about, where they were talking about kind of the impact that all of this will have on house prices. And, you know, the reports kind of talked about how real house prices declines could actually be significant because you've got your affordability pressures and your kind of declining economic prospects. And then the very last line of his copy says that the industry here is still predicting a soft landing. And I just thought, oh, no, there's a phrase that I literally never want to hear again.
0: I literally had that line right in front of me there, just as you were saying that. And I said, God, that was, I had a horrible flashback when I, when I read that line to uh, to 2008 yeah. and everything that followed 2008. I mean, just on the broader economic picture, before we move on to a bit more about the energy stuff, Jack, uh, I was listening to a, another podcast, a British podcast, about the travails of the current UK government. And Quasi Quartang and Liz Truss are trying to make the point that the headwinds they're facing, and they're facing very se- serious headwinds again this week, and they're having to um, to prop up the bond market again uh, because of because of pressure in the market. Uh- That this is happening all over the world and they're just experiencing it a little more intensely. And this podcast described it, what's going on at the moment, as an ugly baby contest. (laughs) And at the moment, it's Quasi Quarteng and Liz Truss's baby that's winning the ugly baby contest, which is that they're the ones who are seen as the most vulnerable. But in a way, that's just an example of something that's going to happen all over the world as the markets get more and more
2: edgy. It's a very vivid um, image, (laughs) ugly baby contest. Um, like there's there's something to it to it do you know like um but i think that leaning into it too much does somewhat allow them off the hook for the uh rather spectacular triple backflip of economic lunacy that they've uh, indulged in off the high board uh, in the last well it is their ugly baby it is their ugly baby yeah <laughs> and and yeah it's a beauty of an ugly baby alright um but i suppose that to the broader point uh yes markets are twitchy and uh, all the kind of the realignments that we spoke about over the last five minutes or so are a factor that are that is kind of secular and and affecting a lot of um, a lot of advanced economies. And it shows, I suppose, you know, uh, the, the vulnerability of um, certain policy choices. And uh, we in this country don't need a lesson in how policy choices can be uh punished by uh financial markets and bond markets in particular and how that can uh descend into its own kind of special doom loop. There's another phrase that we haven't heard in a decade or so, a doom loop. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it shows that, that governments have to have to tread tread carefully uh and you know that no matter the the allure of wanting to be seen to be a, a kind of a bold Visionary who is willing to kind of forge their own path economically, and um, while that stuff may play relatively well in a electoral contest that is concentrated in the uh, Tory Party membership in the UK, and um, once you do it, once you take down, I think it was a Financial Times podcast I was listening to not too long ago, and they they likened it to going into the kind of policy pantry and taking down every single idea marked a bad idea and putting it uh, in place all at once. Once you do that. Against that backdrop, the costs are absolutely enormous and the costs for the UK are absolutely enormous. I mean, at a bare minimum, um, if they reverse course uh, in a serial fashion, as they have done uh, on a couple of policy, specific policy interventions, it, it shows just that, you know, they, they, their room for manoeuvre is massively limited. And um, because their credibility is so badly dented, if they lean into it and, and go and go and, and go ahead and, and plough ahead uh, with the kind of reforms that 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 quasi-courting and Liz want to do, Um, you know the the the, the spectre of of them being contract with a con- uh, conflict with their own central bank and everything, which is again something we've covered already on this podcast, um, is one that invites a whole load of of economic misery for the UK, and and when they sneeze, we catch a cold. So you know, it's 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 something that's serious for for us as well, and I, I suppose. If one was the government here and, um, you know, they, they, it, it shows why they are clapping their, themselves on the back to a certain extent about their own budget and saying, aren't we great fellows for both um, backstopping people, but also uh, doing so in a sensible way that hasn't attracted the uh, the eye of Sauron of, of the market so far.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Listen, uh, we're going to take a quick break, but stick with us for more bleakness after this. <laughs> And welcome back. Uh, Jennifer and Jack are still with me and we're just going to finish off talking about the rolling energy crisis, Jennifer, because a very important part of it, it seems to me, although I do have huge difficulty getting my head around it, is the European aspect. And there is a big meeting in Prague today about this.
1: Whenever anyone says my full name, Jennifer, I always think I'm in trouble. But anyway, yes, um, there is a meeting uh, in in the EU today, so the energy ministers are meeting in Prague Um, and they're under a bit of pressure, to be honest, because... There was an informal meeting last week, and what emerged from that was not a consensus, but actually a picture of different countries, all with different takes on whether a gas price cap should be introduced at a European level, and if it should, what that actually means. Different countries seem to have different interpretations of it. But I think today kind of matters because they what they need to do is come out and show that they can move some way towards an agreement on this That will allow the Commission to kind of present these proposals before a gathering of all the different EU leaders, which takes place in Brussels next week. So the the pressure really is on and we're into, you know, fuel season now. I think what they're talking about from from what I can pick up at the moment is this so-called Iberian model. And what this effectively is, is capping gas prices used uh, specifically in electricity generation to the rest of the bloc. But there is opposition from different countries. Um, I think one of the biggest kind of fears that is coming out, you you pick up from countries like Germany, is if they cap the gas prices used in electricity generation, does that send out a message to, you know, households around the EU that actually it's okay to use the same amount of fuel um, or gas or whatever you're using as you were before, when actually the message should be that we need to cut our consumption massively in order to avoid blackouts effectively um, this winter. So I think what they'll have to do is come up with a proposal um, by the end of today that will kind of alleviate those concerns, but also actually address the reality of the fact that some European countries are facing blackouts. And we've heard a bit of talk about this in both Germany and the UK. Um, Now, I think, you know, I was reading this morning about a plan that Germany and the Netherlands might put forward This kind of 10 point plan and what that focuses on is kind of the EU clubbing together to jointly purchase gas and the point of that is to stop countries who are more reliant or countries who are richer even from kind of outbidding each other Um, and that goes back to the issue with Germany where they're spending you know I think it's 200 you know billions of euros basically uh, subsidising households when other countries can't afford that Um, and then that goes into the whole issue of the EU playing field but we won't go there. Um, So that's what's happening today um, and at the same time in the doll, there there'll be a debate on the 200 euro electricity credit and the supplementary estimate is 1.2 or 1.3 billion euro needed for that. And then the idea and the hope and the, the wish is that next week in Brussels, a, a final plan can be put forward. But it's absolutely not a given.
0: Yeah, at the at the heart of this, Jack seems to be patterns which any of us who've been following EU politics over the years will be familiar with: a bit of a north south divide, a bit of you know, um, kind of a move towards fiscal restraint from Germany, the Netherlands, and other northern countries, a suspicion of a pan European approach, a suspicion of so called profligacy among among certain southern European nations, and you know. We got over that by we, I mean the EU in this case, a bit during COVID and there was a pan European uh response. Uh but the same political tensions seem to arise again reading today, you know, about, you know, domestic tensions in the German government, the, the free democrats who have not been having a good time politically in Germany are really not keen on this pan European approach. Um, and so it seems to me to be far from a foregone conclusion that, that we will get, you know, a deal that will really address this across the
2: EU. Yes, and and you correctly identify that, you know, a lot of those um issues, I suppose you could call them, were overridden during COVID um by like some pretty high profile interventions, the issuing of, of common debt, uh being the the most significant of them and you know the kind of broadly uh accommodative um monetary policies that were adopted by the ECB, which allowed for massive state intervention, um, but like, let's not forget that in in the first days and weeks of of the COVID pandemic, as it spread across Europe, um, Europe didn't function very well, and um, you know there was competition amongst member states for PPE, uh, with member states bidding them bidding each other, uh, you know, hugely um, vicious competition for. Uh, ventilators and CPAP and BiPAP machines, and effectively, kind of export bans or soft export bans coming into place within the bloc. So, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't let the um, we shouldn't let history be rewritten on that, and 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 you know, assume that that COVID was some kind of hinge point that that triumphed over all these historical issues that that the EU has when it comes to facing facing common threats. Because I think that everything would suggest that you know a lot of the um, a lot of the problems that have tripped up previous. Responses, most notably the financial crisis, are are manifesting again, and um, and I think it's a massive moment for, kind of you know, EU coherence, but also I suppose more narrowly for the uh, the leadership of the von der Leyen Commission and and the extent to which she's able to, and her commission is able to to grapple with this and provide leadership and provide a mechanism uh, whereby. Um, Households are in the first, to the first point, insulated in the second point, you know, the massive uh, windfall profits aren't allowed to be retained by the by the energy companies, um, all the while maintaining the balance within the EU and uh, national energy markets, which, as I think we've all found in recent weeks and months, are rather complex beasts and, and react in rather unpredictable ways and uh, are structured kind of differently in different member states. So it's a, it's a remarkably difficult policy challenge Um, and i wish them luck
0: (laughs) just to touch on one last thing on this jen i should have mentioned it earlier and it's a much it's a much smaller but it's a more graspable issue I, i mean the 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 opposition have had difficulty landing a glove on government since the budget i think it's fair to say but they're focusing in on the fact that all these uh additional sums of money are going to be given to people who own holiday homes as well as for people's primary homes and that does seem like uh you know sweets for the rich, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, um, I guess the interesting thing about this is that when the first €200 electricity credit um, was given to households earlier this year, this conversation was had and the justification from the government at the time was that we want to get this out to households now, people need it now, um, and we don't have time to kind of reorganise this sort of really complex system by which we would administer it. So actually, we're just going to keep it simple and we're just going to give it to basically every household that has an NPRN number. Um, and to start selecting different groups to take out would just be too complicated in the time frame that they had then. Now, fast forward, it's been a couple of months since then, the summer has passed, and it's the same excuse again, effectively, that it's just too complicated to filter them out. And uh, I mentioned that press conference after Cabinet yesterday with Michael McGrath and Heather Humphreys, and this came up then as well. And there were journalists kind of asking, you know, is that a good enough reason to not have fixed this effectively? And is it really good enough to say that you're going to give this credit to people who have holiday homes or people who maybe have a joint income or an income of more than, you know, 100,000 euro? And the response from government was, well, we believe pretty much everybody needs this credit. And you don't know the personal circumstances of different households. You know, there could be somebody in the household um, with a disability. There could be special health needs. There could be high rents. There could be mortgage issues etc. etc. And all of that is true, but I think our colleague Harry McGee has a story this morning and he kinda has the figures. And basically what the government have effectively decided to do is to include almost sixty-two thousand holiday homes. And that does seem extraordinary. I mean you would imagine that the much better idea would be not to give um these, you know, six hundred euro effectively, um when all is said and done, to all of these different holiday homes and instead focus that kind of in a more targeted way at the households who are really, really struggling. Um, but like I said, the excuse or the reason or whatever from government is that it's just too complex to do, and perhaps everybody needs it anyway. Which clearly is not the case for holiday homes; that are lying empty. So, yeah.
0: Well, yeah. clearly not everybody needs mm-hmm. it as much as everybody else. I mean, that's that's that, that's clearly just not the case. Anyway, the, and the other thing that's going on uh, at the moment, Jack, is the the concrete levy arising from the micro address scheme, which is going to be an an enormous financial burden on the state over the next few years. And um, this was going to claw back some of it with a levy on on concrete. Uh, It sounds like there's a
2: U-turn in the offing. It does. There was a there was a interesting meeting um, of members of the Fianna Fail parliamentary party. A dedicated uh, PP meeting uh, yesterday on Tuesday afternoon, um, attended by uh, by my kind of between ten and fifteen, uh, maybe a little bit more, um, including some some kind of prominent uh, backbench rebels, Barry Cowan, John McGuinness, um, Jackie Cahill from Tipperary, uh, who are consistent critics of of Micheal Martin. And I suspect that there may be a kind of internal Fianna Fail uh, political uh, angle to this as well, because um, you know it it's a it's a potential weakness for the Taoiseach but um the upshot of it seems to be that that a lot of the participants in the meeting um having in the words of one participant unanimously said that now is not the time for this uh levy are walking away from it feeling more confident that the levy uh, and talking privately about the levy not being a runner and um, now you know I'm not sure to what extent that confidence will be will be validated um by uh, the finance bill, but certainly there is an expectation growing amongst backbenchers in Fianna Fáil and to some extent within Fine Gael that there there is about to be a U-turn or this thing is going to be um, kind of moderated out of existence. Uh, one thing that was interesting was that I find it very hard talking to Fianna Fáil yesterday to get them to, to accept the word deferral, you know, that this thing would be deferred, which I thought was very, very peculiar, but it seems to be that there's no merit over that word because they don't want to be seen to be trying to kill this thing entirely. They want to be very clear that they accept the principle and you know that the the, the logic of of going after uh builders for defective buildings and, and and defective blocks and concrete manufacturers were saying is one that they support but but not now so they seem to have a second principle which is even more important than the first and second principle is that the first principle shall never be enforced <laughs> so look i think that you know the what the other interesting thing about this is that um the whole process uh has been endorsed to an extent by uh, Fianna Fáil Cabinet figures, um, most notably Minister for Housing Darrell Bryan and Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform Michael McGrath, who have kind of been appointed as liaisons between the group of backbenchers chaired by John LaHart and, um, and and the government itself. And they're taking up this task of of translating um, the grumblings of the backbenchers into a policy paper of some description or a paper representing them, which will then be carried forward by cabinet ministers and given to Pascal Donoghue. And I suppose then, you know, they they leave it at his door step and say Here, here's how our party feels about it and um, we are kind of between government and backbenchers I'm not sure to what extent the Taoiseach is going to bless this uh, this policy paper with his approval he'll probably, do ne- he'll probably do neither and kind of pretend it's not really there and then it'll be up to Pascal Donahue to, to kind of figure out a way of accommodating this and, and to figure out how to do the politics of this and um, while also I presume um, keeping intact the budgetary sums because let's not forget that there's 80 million euros attached to this levy and I'm operating on the assumption that if that is in some way diluted or gotten rid of entirely, it has to be found elsewhere for the budget sums to, to 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 balance. So, um, I think that you know this this is not quite a controversy that is that is caught alight, more a kind of hand grenade that the the government and backbenchers have been juggling, and um, and it's not quite sure. I'm not quite sure whether it's a dud or a live grenade at this stage, but uh, it is something that I think they're going to have to do. They they have to they have to figure out a, a winnable position on this um, between now and and the, the the passage of the finance bill before Christmas. I suppose one thing they have in their favour is they do have a little bit of time and they'd have a committee stage of the finance bill. So there is there is argu- argumentation that can happen on this and perhaps a fudge can be agreed, but certainly go walking out of that meeting last night, a lot of those Fianna backbenchers, the wind was in their sails and they, they feel they can they can sense victory on it.
0: And then a last point uh, for today in our litany of woe, Jen. <laughs> uh, are we going to have to be wearing face masks again this winter?
1: Oh, listen, I mean... Again, going back to writing the digest this morning, I'm trying to pick the top item to write about. And I'm I'm, you know, reading and, and hearing all the stuff from government about COVID. And I just thought I can't, I can't, I actually can't. Um censorship of the highest order. What would Paul Kyo make? But no, um, I think I think the situation is things have returned pretty much to normal for all of us. And then, you know, what's what's happening in the hospitals is that the COVID-19 numbers are rising. It was predicted this was ha- this would happen, um, it was expected, um, but it does look like if those figures kind of go beyond a certain tipping point, I'm not sure what that is, that they, we could return to mask wearing uh, on public transport and in, and in health settings and that could be mandatory again. I do think probably you'll find a bit of pushback in government to that because one of the messages that I, I've kind of heard from different parts of government over the last 24 hours is if people feel the need to wear a face mask or if they want to wear a face mask, if they feel safer wearing a face mask, then they should. Um, I suppose a lot will depend on the public health advice over the next couple of weeks. We have the new chief medical officer, uh, Breda Smith. She briefed the government uh, the evening before last. Um, And I think they're waiting to see kind of exactly what the trajectory is over the weekend. The one kind of cautionary note I would put on it is that um, the biggest fear is about the twindemic, as they call it. So if there's a massive increase in flu cases at the same time as, you know, a COVID wave, then that could basically leave hospitals in an untenable position which could open up a vista that none of us really want to go back to um it's not expected now but like anything with covid you just can't rule anything right. out
0: right we're sorry to bring you such a downbeat podcast today but we'll do our we'll do our best to to to, to cheer You're you all sorry, up a little bit a little bit more <laughs> next week but you know we've got a call it like we see it. Uh, Listen, thanks very much indeed to, to Jack and to Jen for joining us. Our producer is Declan Conlon and our engineer is JJ Vernon and we're going to be back very soon indeed. Until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.